Hello, and welcome to another episode of ABC Gotham. My name is Kate. With me, as always, is Kathleen. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode N. Yeah, this is going to be a bit of a two-parter. We just kind of had too much to go into about this topic to fit it all into one massive episode. So That's it. There's so much good stuff, and we thought we could cut out a lot of stuff, or we could just give it to you all in two episodes. And once you hear what we're talking about, trust me. It's worth it. You are going to love this. This is really exciting stuff. Yes. So if you've already listened to part one, this is part two of Nazis in New York. Mm -hmm. In part two, we will be discussing Operation Pastorius. Right. Yeah, you know, when I was reading it, for some reason, I had such a hard time. There's Between this and Duquesne, I, I, I never read them, I think, the correct way. Um, oh, okay. And Pistorius, for some reason, I kept like, I don't, you know, it's one of those visual things where you read things a certain way and then you com- read it the wrong way every single time. Anyway, I kept reading it as like um, object pastoral. Like, I don't, I don't know. In my head, I just kept <laughs> reading it totally weird every single time. Oh. So Operation Pistorius. Not, mm-hmm. not Pistorius. Yes, I did it again. Well, you know what? Get it wrong. We know what you're talking about. Operation Pistorius uh, mm. was a failed Nazi Germany plan to sabotage strategic American economic tra- targets during World War II, specifically June of 1942. So, the events that we discussed in uh, the Duquesne episode the previous to this, really kind of led up to what Kathleen and I are going to tell you about now. Exactly. It, it, it led to the situation of, uh, you know, how strong espionage was for Germany and the United, in the U.S. and, and kind of the situation where they had to rebuild their forces. Their spy network was gone. They had to start from scratch. Exactly. And this was their idea. It doesn't quite go, I think, the way they wanted to. Not quite, no. Nope. But, you know, you do what you, you, you got to do. And that works out better for us in the end. So, <laughs> does, you know, we're good. No, and if this had, it's another one of those failed plots mm-hmm. that, if it had gone well, would have been completely devastating. Absolutely. I will explain why right now. Uh, Before I jump in, I do want to give credit to a really great book called Saboteurs by Michael Dobbs, D-O-B-B-S. I highly recommend it. It's written in a very exciting way. That was my primary source, along with Wikipedia and everything else. Um, But but that was a, a helpful book. So... Yes. So yes, which you can tiny. now check out of the Brooklyn Public Library because I finally turned my copy back in. Oh, well, I've got it right now. But probably by the time that this is released, <laughs> it will be back in the Brooklyn Public Library system. So enjoy. I bet they have multiple copies. It's so good. You know, I think the Brooklyn Public Library only has like two copies. Two or two? I think they have two, yeah. And so for a while now, Kathleen Eva and I have been bogarting all of the copies of this book um for the good of our listeners exactly, you're welcome exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right so yeah just like kate was saying this was in uh june of 42 when it happened i'm gonna back up just a tiny bit to the spring of 42 to april just give you a little bit of uh exactly what's going on in germany in the u.s and uh let you know what the status is think back it is spring of 1942 World War II has been going on for years, and Germany has invaded and overtaken Czechoslovakia, Poland, the Balkans, Belgium, the Netherlands, and France. Most recently, Hitler's forces have made incursions into Russia, and they're allied with Japan and with Italy, but not everything is going according to Hitler's plan. He still doesn't have Great Britain. I always think it's kind of crazy that we weren't in the war before this, like... Right. Why? So, you know, obviously the reason we join the war is because we get bombed on by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. But it's crazy to me that it took that long. Like, I feel like we're in everybody's business now. (laughs) Right. Like, how? I guess because of the previous World War, we didn't want to get sucked into another one. But it seems so crazy that 
this guy's like, you know, I'm just going to take over these countries. And we're like, you know what, as long as you do whatever there. I think that's it. And I think before we got in the war, there was a ton of controversy. And a lot of people in the country were like, why? Let's just let's just focus on America. We're not the world's policemen. America first. This isn't our problem. And and yeah, we can't get into another war. And, uh, you know, another very large and loud faction was like, we got to join in. We got to help. In this case, we got to help Great Britain. This guy's going to take over Europe. That's not something we want to have to deal with. So it was tricky. And then how we dealt with Russia and, and communism. I don't know. It was it was a complicated situation. I think that Kate is exactly right. You know, while while Hitler doesn't have Great Britain, he's having a bad time in Russia. The winter of 41 to 42 killed tens of thousands of German soldiers. And then just like Kate says, Pearl Harbor. And that means there is a powerful new player on the Allied side. So it's not looking so good for Hitler. Um, he's not a fan of America. He loathed America and Americans, but he actually admired American industry and manufacturing. He um, was a big fan of Henry Ford and the entire assembly line system and how efficient that was and effective. And what it was looking like is that manufacturing was probably going to be the deciding factor in who won World War II. So wait, you're saying like the most anti-Semitic leader was a big fan of Henry Ford, a very anti-Semitic um, industry person? Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Isn't so that weird. <laughs> they stick together, I guess. I guess. Um, yeah, manufacturing was probably going to be the deciding factor. So the U.S. had just recently entered the war. They had to completely ramp up their operations and, you know, convert factories from manufacturing trucks to manufacturing tanks and things like that. Um, so U.S. was still ramping up. The German military forces were pretty seasoned and they were experienced and they were, you know, on task. But Hitler knew that it would not take very long for the U.S. to ramp up its operations. And once that happened, factories in the U.S. would supply Britain and Russia with all the airplanes and all the tanks and all the ships that they would want, and that would shift the balance in favor of the Allies. So that was something that Hitler knew he needed to stop somehow. Right. So just like he feared, while German soldiers are freezing to death and their equipment was like seizing up on the frozen tundras in Russia, U.S. factories sped up. They sped up the production of aluminum and iron and steel, and that means that in 1942 alone, the U.S. produced tons of weaponry. They produced 45,000 tanks, 60,000 airplanes, and 20,000 anti-aircraft guns. So the problem is, if Germany wanted to win the war, they had to disrupt the industry, the industrial operations in the U.S., so they needed sabotage. And Hitler wanted to send his people to the U.S. to stop or, you know, cripple production uh, and manufacturing. I love the word sabotage mostly. It is a good word. Because yes. it means uh, like to throw your shoe. Like it comes from the word sabot for shoe. And it's because, oh, yeah. right, it's because um, the, like some of the original machines that were coming out um, were, I mean, we're talking industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. And people wore actually wooden shoes at the time. Mm. And in order okay. to break the machines, um, because you know, before that, that everything, yeah, before everything else was done by hand. And, you know, they were saying, oh, we're losing all of our craftsmen and, and they're being taken over by these machines. They would take off their wooden shoes and throw them into the gears to bake. The, they would throw them into the gears to break the press. Um, so every single time I hear sabotage, I think of like wooden shoes. Shoes flying. In, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Which is, which is very similar to what they, they wind up doing. Um, yeah. So, so we need to start throwing some shoes. Let's throw shoes. So Hitler, um, decides at this point that, yeah, like Kathleen was saying, sabotage is the best way to demoralize the civilian population in the United States. Like, it needs to be widespread. It needs to attack not just the war effort and building these tanks and stuff, but to actually, like, attack infrastructure to to really bring the entire U.S. down. We can't focus on this war. We're destroyed at home. Right. 
And it's not really a situation where they're able to send in their their planes and their tanks and their and their submarines to the U.S. A couple of oceans on either side kept us pretty safe, kept the home front, you know, removed from the war. But you still got to send in someone. And this is not a new idea. Obviously, you listen to our espionage episode. You listen to episode one of uh, Nazis in New York. There there have been stuff before. Uh, if you remember in the espionage episode we discussed during World War One, a German servitor blew up Black Tom Island mm-hmm. ammunition depot. As you remember, that explosion killed seven people, including one infant, and it disrupted some transportation. But overall, really the greatest damage it did was by increasing anti-German sentiment in the U.S. And so for this reason, you know, when they were discussing this in Germany, uh, a lot of Hitler's really trusted aides were advising against taking action on U.S. soil. They they saw it could be more detrimental than beneficial. But those are discussions that happened before Pearl Harbor. Once Pearl Harbor happened, things changed. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the U.S. is fighting in this war. We definitely need a sabotage plan. And the plan was that Germany would send skilled men to the U.S. with specific instructions. They were going to disrupt U.S. industry and cripple their support for the Allied cause. Now, this story has a lot of plot twists. A lot of things that you are going to expect to be the case are not going to be the case, and we're going to explain all of that, but we need you to stick with us and listen carefully. So I'm going to introduce you to a couple of the characters. Oh, good. Yeah, Kathleen actually took German classes, so a lot of the pronunciations here, I'm just going to let her... Uh, get them correct because I'm 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 sure people know at this point I'm not the best at uh, pronouncing names. Oh, it's all it's all a construct. These are written words; they get pronounced many ways. As long as you convey the idea, I think we got it. But yeah, um, our first German who you will meet is a man named Walter Kappe. That's K A P P E. You do pronounce the last vowel in German. Uh, Kappa, he was a German who spent much of his life in the United States. So imagine this guy. He has this doughy face with like droopy eyelids and sagging jowls. So picture him on the Facebook page. Take a look. You'll be like, ugh. He spoke English, but he had a really thick German accent. Here's what he tried to do. He tried to obscure his German accent by affecting a fake Oxford accent. Wow. Apparently, it was laughably bad. It was really unconvincing. (laughs) Just own your German accent, man. Seriously. Don't. Don't. You can always pretend you're like Austrian or something, right? I guess. Yeah, I guess. I don't know why you don't want people to know what you are. I don't know. And you'll hear about how very active he was in the German-American community. He was really loud. He was really bombastic. Uh, He was a former propaganda chief for the German-American Bund, that's B-U-N-D, and the Bund was an American outgrowth of the Nazi party. I'm going to take a super quick break here to tell you about Squarespace. I'm kidding, we don't have ads. I'm break to t- from telling you about Kappa to talk a little bit about the German-American Bund. So this was established in 1936. It was an organization of Americans of German descent and its purpose was to promote a positive view of Nazi Germany. That's all. Um, the the happy side of Nazi the Germany. The happy side. So the side often where, ignored in the mainstream media. Right. The side with the like blonde children with blue eyes. With and, the blonde children. Yes. Pastoral yes. scenes. Get it? I still got pastoral in there somewhere. You did very nice. Yeah. Thanks. Um, in the German American community, which was sizable huge especially in chicago but in all the major cities uh they didn't have a lot of support the you know this wasn't like a a thing that all the german americans were like woo the bund they didn't have a ton of support but you know they did what they could they published newspapers and pamphlets they held rallies in major cities uh these rallies uh seemed kind of scary there'd be nazi insignias everywhere swastikas everyone's doing the hitler salute Um, The Bund established six camps or resorts in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and there they would train youths. So it was similar to Hitler Youth. It was an organization for kids. They would also hold rallies and marches there. 
This group protested against President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They protested against communism, Jewish groups, trade unions. Uh, this is kind of a weird little thing. They really liked George Washington. Hmm. They, they loved him. They hooked on to that George Washington train. They Apparently, George Washington thought democracy might not be feasible. I'm not sure where they got that idea. I did some looking into George Washington's positions on democracy, and nothing was really clear about that. Whatever reason, as a result, they considered him the greatest American fascist. So when you look at these pictures of the Bund and the Bund rallies and things like that on the Facebook page, you can always, you see that they always have this image of George Washington displayed next to their swastikas up on the, the speaker's podium. Uh, it's like that, you know, one of these things is not like the other one. Yes, that's exactly what What doesn't like. fit in this picture? <laughs> hey, they liked him. And here is the first twist in our story. You may be surprised to learn that Deutschland, the nation of Germany, not a huge fan of the Bund. Really? They didn't like it. There was no uh, official connection or link at all. Neither the German government nor any German cultural groups gave the Bund anything, any help, advice, or leadership. They certainly didn't give them money. At some point, Germany kind of tried to distance themselves from the Bund because it was getting to be an embarrassment. That's kind of crazy when you yeah. think about it. Mm-hmm. It was. But it doesn't mean the Bund didn't have an effect. Uh, the pinnacle of their activity was their rally in Madison Square Garden. This was on February 20th, 1939. So this is, you know, several years before we're talking about with the... And this won't be the Madison the Square Garden that you're thinking about right now, the hideous, uh, gross thing... On 34th Street. This is, well, right. well I, I'm, I'm sure we post, I, I'm pretty sure we've posted pictures of old Madison Square Garden before. So we'll we'll definitely put that up there as well. Yes, yes. And, and you can see there's a couple of pictures on the Facebook page right now. I don't know how they did it, but they got 20,000 people to attend. Wow. It was huge. And if you look at those pictures, they're terrifying. It's really, really terrifying to see this huge... I mean, it looks like one of those Nazi rallies in Berlin, but it's all Americans. Right. Very, very scary. And this is where some of this, um, this sabotage that we're going to talk about really kind of becomes more real. When, when you see that there is like such a big sympathetic movement here for the Nazis, like that, those words don't seem to go together. But looking at these pictures, it's just, you're like, oh, God, this in, in like this alternate reality world, like this could have happened, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's it. There wasn't a ton of support for Nazi Germany here, but there was some. There was a, a loose network, especially because of the Bund. And, you know, they, they had an organization, names and addresses, phone numbers, people who were, you know, varying levels of supportive, but people who could help out saboteurs. And you'll hear about them in a little while. Um the, uh, the Bund rally, yeah, Madison Square Garden, the Bund leader was a man named Fritz Kuhn. He spoke and he criticized Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is a real burn. Are you ready, Kate? I'm ready. He I'm called ready. him Franklin Rosenfeld. Oh! Oh, because burn. he's Jewish? Uh-huh. You know, he's, um, he's not Jewish, right? They know that, right? No, he is not Jewish, no. Um, he, Fritz Kuhn referred to the New Deal as the Jew deal. Mm. Wow, he's, he's pretty clever, that one. He, he is. He's so clever. I don't know who writes his lines, but it's, it's savage. Uh, and we shouldn't be surprised. There was an outbreak of violence between protesters. At a and... Nazi rally? Really? Right? Who'd thunk it? And you know what their security force was called? They called them the Bund Stormtroopers. They were actually called that. Oh, Stormtroopers? Really? Like, mm-hmm. like, where did... George Lucas come up with that. 70s? Uh, oh. That's creepy. Very creepy. Now I'm anyway, just going to see... back to Cappy. I'm just going to see stormtroopers as Nazis now, which they kind of are. I mean, yeah, well, hmm, it's complicated. It's very complicated. Yeah. So back to Cappy. So I was saying that Cappy worked with the Bund, um, and he had lived in the U.S. for 12 years, but... After a very bitter split from others in, like, the American Nazi leadership, he wanted to be the leader instead of Fritz Kuhn. They did not uh, agree with him. So they kicked him out, and he was sort of disgraced. 
He was broke due to a failed lawsuit. He had no career prospects in sight because he had hitched his wagon to the Bund. So he was forced to return to Germany with his family in 1937. You go back to where your family is. Maybe there's some more opportunities out there. First, when he was there, he was working and generating anti-American propaganda. And then when the war started, he transferred to military intelligence. And he had the plan. He had this big plan. He was going to establish a vast network of German spies and saboteurs in the U.S., and as you all know, there had been an extensive network before, but uh, renegade spy William Siebold gave them all up, and that was the end of our of the established network. And Kappa wanted to repair the damage that Siebold did. So Kappa faced a lot of logistical opposition, a lot of personal opposition. He was not, he didn't sound like a popular guy. He sounded kind of, you know, pushy. Despite all that opposition, he just blustered ahead regardless. And the plan was named Operation Pastorius. Kate, can you tell us why? Let's hear it. Operation Pastorius is named by Admiral Wilhelm Canaris for Daniel, for Francis Daniel Pastorius, who is the leader of the first organized settlement of Germans in America. Which I think is so smart. Yeah, it is. It's like the Germans going to America to get stuff done. And the thing is, those immigrants, and they, they uh, emigrated to the U.S., that was in 1683. They were 13 families of Mennonites and Quakers. And now that whole, that whole group's name is going to be put on saboteurs and spies set on destroying American industry. So I don't feel like the Mennonites and Quakers would be thrilled with that, but whatevs. And where they had settled is actually uh, a town that is now known as Germantown, Pennsylvania. And Kepe was the one with the idea to send saboteurs, and so he was the guy who picked the recruits. And that... I don't think he does a very good job on picking these guys. I think that is the crux of the entire episode, Kate. Because, first of all, you, you've got the two main people don't want to do it. Not only do they not want to do it, but one of them actually spent time in a concentration camp so yeah i'm i'm gonna be like i don't like nazis <laughs> um he actually it's because one of the guys uh who will become a saboteur ernst peter berger like every good um german um at 17 he joined the nazi party uh and he actually mm -hmm. uh, the all these people were picked because they had some tie to the u.s they'd lived here for a while they were or two of them were actually u.s citizens so that was the second twist right? that I was Ooh. going to discuss. Oh, man, I gave away a twist. Is. <laughs> I was just about to talk about it, though. Which is that the men that Kappa sent to sabotage American industry weren't Germans. No. And they weren't Austrians and they weren't Poles. They weren't Italians and Japanese. Definitely weren't Jews. And Nazis who were trained, selected, crossed the Atlantic from Germany to destroy American factories were all longtime residents of North America. Exactly. And, like I was saying, two of them were actual citizens. Like, this guy, exactly. Berger, mm -hmm. he emigrated to America in 1927 and then be actually became a citizen in 1933. He, exactly. he lived in the U.S. for a long time. He even, Kathleen, served in the National Guard. He did, yeah, honorably. But during the Depression, with no jobs... You know, he actually returned to Germany, and that's when he rejoined the Nazi Party, um, and actually became pretty, pretty good job, I guess, for a Nazi. Um, mm -hmm. Became an mm -hmm. aide de camp to Ernst Rollen, um, who is the chief of the Nazi stormtroopers. Uh, so, what put him for seven? This is the reason I'm like, oh, why did you pick this guy? He actually wrote a paper that was critical of the uh, Gestapo. And that's what put him in a concentration camp for 17 months. It, 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 it makes me wonder if maybe Kappa didn't have a lot of people to pick from. I mean, he had this idea. And this is a good idea. And I think this is probably pretty common in, in espionage. He would send German-Americans. He would send guys who were fluent in English, that knew American culture, who could pass as Lithuanian or Irish or Swede or even Jews, and that means they could provide a convincing backstory if they get captured. You want guys who don't overtly look like Germans, right? Right. And he, Kappa, was pretty confident there'd be plenty 
of very excellent qualified Americans with strong German sympathies who would love to assist the fatherland in this way. See, at first I thought, why don't they just pick one of those German Nazi German Nazi sympathizers at the rally and just like I'm sure they could get I mean I realize they don't like that organization but at first I was like why don't they just go to one uh, like you can pick like a handful of those guys they the would Bund, love right, to do right. it and I think that's why Caput was so confident that he could get so many good people because he's he'd been so involved in the Bund he was entire time in the U.S., he was surrounded by the people who legitimately were sympathetic to Nazi Germany. And uh, there certainly were people in the U.S. who uh, had Nazi leanings. Kappa himself, he wasn't a citizen, but he was a permanent resident. He had permanent resident status. And he wanted to recruit from the Bund, but the pickings were really, really slim. And Kate told you about Ernst Peter Berger. I'll tell you a little bit about George John Dash. And he was the one who was selected to be the leader of the crew. You're going to be hearing a lot about Dash. It's spelled D-A-S-C-H. He's going to be our hero of the story. Sort of. He doesn't sound like a particularly pleasant guy, but yes. So he was selected to be the leader, and when he was young and, and living in Germany, he had been kicked out of a seminary, and so he moved to the U.S. in 1922. He lived in the U.S. for 20 years. He got very, very close to getting citizenship, actually. It was like a, a paperwork thing in the end that that made it not happen. When he was in the U.S., he waited tables in restaurants on Long Island. He even worked to unionize waitstaff. So he was active and motivated and interested. Um, but he returned to the fatherland to help fight when World War II broke out because German-Americans were encouraged to do that. And this was before the U.S. was in the war, so it wasn't quite as inflammatory. You know, Germany wasn't saying to Americans, leave America to fight America. They were saying come back to Germany to help us fight this war that we find ourselves in. Um, so that was when he abandoned his citizenship applications, when he returned to Germany. Um, and his English was a little rusty, but he had lots of American slang, which apparently might have been what uh, what Kappa really liked about him, because he wanted guys who could blend in, and slang is part of it. I think he knew a lot about baseball or something. I mean, you know, he had enough that uh, he could have passed as a loyal American, if necessary. And right, and that's, I get that, that that's how they picked all of these guys. And, and going back to what I said before, if you think about why they didn't, it's kind of smart that it doesn't work out with these guys, but it's kind of smart that they picked these guys rather than using the <clears throat> Bund Party people, because I'm sure those people were all on some watch list. This is, sure. we're talking like the era of uh, J. Edgar Hoover. So mm -hmm. he's a, they're all on somebody's list, like you know, if any of these guys had like suddenly gone, to, if any of those people had suddenly gone to Germany for a while and then came back, like they would have been watched. These are just a bunch of guys. Uh, and they also kind of sneak their way in. But even, but when they're here, they're not going to be on somebody's list because they don't really exist here. Actually, you make a really good point. What he's got are guys who are in Germany. He didn't bring right. anyone over. No. And you wouldn't have been able to travel from the U.S. to Germany anyway once the U.S. was at war. So, exactly. Yeah, not only is everyone in the Bund on some list that, yeah, you're right. They couldn't get the out of the country, and there's no way they would have been let back in. Exactly. So you know what? Maybe Kappa was right. Maybe there were thousands of guys who would have loved to have done this and, mm -hmm. you know, performed spectacularly, but he couldn't get to them, and they couldn't get to him. Yes. So he picks eight German residents, and it works out. Kathleen, do you want to list them off since your German's better than mine? What I'm going to do is just tell you <laughs> just tell you about the ones uh, slated for the New York crew. So just to be clear, we got eight guys, and what they had planned was two expeditions. One was going to land on Long Island, and one was going to land in Florida. And the Florida, their story, it's not too, too different from the New York one, and also the New York one happened first. They, they landed a few days before the Florida crew did, and also it's ABC Gotham, not ABC Florida. So I will just be telling you about the guys who were slated to be part of the New York crew, just to save time, as you know, as you can see on your, uh, on your iPod or display right now. This is not a short 
episode. The guys in Florida, it all ties in neatly to what happened. Like everything that happens in New York ties Florida in into this night. It's pretty nice, similar. And actually, the package. Florida story isn't quite as exciting. So it's yeah. not. The New York one's much more exciting. It is. There's so much stuff. So in addition to George John Dash, who is selected to be the leader, and Ernst Peter Berger. Um, Ernst Peter Berger, what did I say? Oh, he, when he emigrated to the U.S. in 1929, his first job was smoking hams in Brooklyn. Cool, huh? Yeah. Where does our job. ham smoker in Brooklyn? I want to work there. Uh, you know what? I'll take you there. <laughs> there's, a, there's a really great, um, I don't know, can we give restaurant shout outs on the yes. podcast? Okay, there's this amazing place in Bushwick called Arrogant Swine. And it's fantastic. And they do whole hog barbecue. So they smoke like the whole pig. Oh, my Lord. All right. We have to, it, if you're listening, you should go. And if the owner's listening to it, I really love your restaurant. And if you were around in 1929, we'd be very interested to know. Yes. If you were, a, 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 you know, you should go to Oregon Swine, check out their thing, and then tell us how different pig smoking is now. Yes. So the third guy in the New York crew was to be Joseph Schmidt. Uh, he was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed giant. He spoke English with a Swedish accent. Huh? Oh, be easy to get him to pass as Swedish. And he he's the only one who hadn't worked or lived in the U.S. for a long time. He had worked and lived in Canada, which is why I said they're from North America. Uh, he was an outdoorsman and a trapper. He was very reserved and very soft-spoken, but he had a very hot temper. Yeah, it's not going to work if you're a spy. Right? He didn't like being contradicted. He was super strong. And I got the sense that Berger was a little frightened of him when he got really angry and loud because he was huge and strong. Number four is Robert Quirin, Q-U-I-R-I-N. He had big ears. He was described as walking with a forward slouch. He had been born in Germany, but he had an uncle living in Schenectady, New York, and that uncle got him an immigrant visa. And so Quirin was able to escape Germany. And it was really hard times in Germany. People, this is part of why there was such a wave of immigration. Right. Quirin worked as an odd job man for wealthy households for years and years in uh, Westchester County, New York. And then he returned to Germany for the same reason as Dash. When the call went out, you know, come home to Germany, help fight and defend the fatherland. This guy was very good with his hands, had some technical skills. He worked for Volkswagen. And he was BFFs with number five, Heinrich Henk, H-E-I-N-C-K. He also escaped hard times in Germany. He got a job as a sailor on the Hamburg-America line, but he jumped ship on his third trip to the U.S., and he stayed in the U.S. for years. And upon his return to Germany, he also became a worker at Volkswagen, and he always seemed sort of unsure of himself and people described him as sort of a slow moving phlegmatic type hmm. yeah this i don't know I, I don't think you could pick a worse kind of bunch of guys for this i mean i know we already talked their heart up but mm -hmm. when you put them together you're like how did you think this was gonna work like for yeah. real yeah and it's interesting to to learn how they kind of rise and fall and what skills they have and where you know the leaders were watching them the whole time that they were being trained and you know this guy was good at the at learning the the, the chemical explosive things this guy didn't seem to care about much at all this guy just wanted to play cards all the time like they they weren't unaware of the problems with the crew but they were aware of their strengths too speaking of training i feel like i also would have picked guys that already knew some of this stuff um they only trained for three weeks. I know, three weeks. I'm like, I don't think I could. I mean, I, I know you just got to plant a bomb, but I, three weeks? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe that's where the plot went wrong. Well. And, oh, I do love, like, I read a bunch of stuff about their training, and it's always, like, extensive training. And I'm like, extensive? You can't extensively train for anything in three weeks. In three weeks? No, no, it was not extensive. And, yeah, and you'll, and you'll get details. You'll hear the details about the training in a moment. Um, so these men, they were known as the Wertromans Manner Abteilung. Those are two words. And that means trusted agents. And they were referred to as the V-men for short. So throughout this, I'll sometimes be saying saboteurs. I'll sometimes say V-men. It's just referring to that same group of guys. And they were ultimately slated to land somewhere in New York. I already told you Long Island. That was what they had eventually decided is where they would go. And the second group 
was to land in Florida. Each group had their own targets, but they did all this training together and were supposed to meet up after their arrival in the U.S. So to coordinate their attacks. And part of their training was what are their targets. And this is really interesting. You will be surprised how important aluminum is to the war effort. Right. Yeah, some of these, um, when I was looking at their targets, Mm -hmm. at first I was like, this is pretty random. And I'm like, wow, this is really... And then you think about it and you're like, this is really smart. They did. I know. If it worked. They really, really figured out exactly, exactly the weak points. Had this worked, we'd have been in very bad trouble. Because it wasn't like they sent them to the U.S. with tons of explosives. We're like, go ahead and wreak havoc. They... These were surgical strikes. They knew exactly where to go. The targets were not just bridges and railroads, but also aluminum and magnesium plants. And aluminum Mm -hmm. was critical to the war effort because it was critical in airplane construction. And if the saboteurs could dismantle aluminum production, that's a serious, serious problem for the U.S. Air Force. And without an Air Force, the German equivalent, which is the Luftwaffe, would maintain control of the skies. The thing is, it's surprisingly easy to disrupt aluminum production. Yeah. I mean, not only were they going to... There was, there was a plant, there was an aluminum company, mm-hmm. uh, a place called um, Aluminum Company of America's Plants in mm-hmm. Illinois, Tennessee. Yes, there's a place in Tennessee named after a state. Um, But they also were going to hit a cryolite plant in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. which cryolite is key to aluminum. Like, they really were, like, really smart. That's it. They traced the process all the way back to the vulnerable points. Yep. Yeah. So not just, like, let's hit this plant that creates aluminum products, Mm -hmm. which was making things for the war effort, but let's get rid of something that actually makes aluminum that Attack is the key supplies. yes yeah it's mm-hmm. it's so well thought out that it's a little scary um, we're going to go through a lot of their targets but i do i will say they did get orders that said oh yeah by the way if you feel like it just randomly p- plant bombs at places right they're, they're like, like also we do want to wreak havoc and and yeah um, they're like pub yeah. I love that they're like public places, bridges, Jewish-owned businesses. I'm like, well, this is terrifying. Like, if this had happened, we would have been in a panic. Like, you never would have known when the bomb was going off. That's it. What's That's exploding it. And then they next. would have hit us on two fronts, which would have been pretty spectacular from, you know, from their point of view, which is mm-hmm. they're going to not only cause terror and mayhem, but, oh, by the way, now we can't make airplanes anymore. Right, and we can't, and we can't get to Europe. Like it would have mm-hmm. completely kept us out of Europe. We would mm-hmm. have been out of the war, it which is what a, they wanted. Exactly, it would have been a very big problem, and a very big problem to recover from. The thing about aluminum is the process of making it requires electricity, and if they were able to deprive aluminum plants of electricity for as short as eight hours, just eight hours without power, they could gum up the works badly enough to permanently disable the plant. Right, which is why they were going to hit the hydroelectric plants at Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, um, the Germans totally did their homework. This is what's interesting. After the war, J. Edgar Hoover said, this is a quote, the German high command was better informed about the importance of these plants than the U.S. Army was because those plants didn't have enough security on site. The Germans knew what they needed to mess up and what would be an easy target, what would be the low-hanging fruit. These two plants in Pennsylvania that produced the aluminum oxide, Kate was saying, they had something called a P3 classification. They were officially considered to be of minor importance to national defense, and that right, because not I the case feel, at all. I feel like that's not something I would worry about. I, mm-hmm. You know, it's not. you never think about an aluminum plant mm-hmm. being vital to the war effort you know or in danger of being uh targeted that's it um it, but it, and it's amazing because they you know they it's every step of the aluminum trail that they go for they go for locks on the ohio river they go on they go for crucial railroad passes um, re- um railroad repair shops they go for just pretty much anything you can think of that would transport aluminum is what they go for. So they did their homework. They they really w- were smart about it. However, 
they just picked the wrong guys. That's it. If, I, if it in the hands of anyone else, it might have worked out just fine. It might have. Thank goodness they picked the wrong guys. But you can see, like, it's so close mm-hmm. to actually working. Yeah, yeah. And then part of their training, they actually had uh, a guy in Germany who was a former employee of the Long Island Railroad. And he provided them with maps, and he was he pointed out pictures of critical rail bottlenecks, like the Hellgate Bridge. Uh, right. There's a, something called the Horseshoe Curve of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Right. Um, and because they were going to, to destroy the Horseshoe, Horseshoe Curve in Altoona, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. they were all, that's what I was saying about railroad repair shops. Mm-hmm. They were, it's, it's a really big crossing point. And yeah. so they were going to knock out all the railroad repair shops nearby. Mm-hmm. So not only is this pass really critical, but there's nothing around to fix it when it exactly. breaks. Exactly. Yeah. And they were supplied with bricks of TNT. They were given all the supplies and training to construct detonators and fuses and timing devices. They were trained in making invisible ink. I don't know why that wow. would be necessary, but they did out of uh, laxatives and aspirin. In addition to this, all this training in explosives and the targets and the detonators, the saboteurs also received counterfeit papers. They got ID papers, social security cards. They got draft registration cards. I think you're supposed to just carry that around. They're draft deferment cards. It's ah, okay. so that um, if somebody asks, like, oh, young man, why are you not yeah. you're a, you're a in young, the war? You're a young, They could say, oh, it's been deferred for six months. Or, yeah. you know, there'd be a reason. This is I why mean, I'm really, walking around. Yeah. Right. Every able-bodied young man was in the war. Mm-hmm. So if, if you just saw, like, a group of four guys, four or five guys, you, you would immediately question, like, why aren't these guys Yeah, especially basically... if you're not in your uniform, you're not on shore leave or something. What's going on? Right. Yeah, they worked on these, so these fake birth certificates and stuff over the extensive three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, they worked on, they did each work on their own false background. Mm-hmm. So they had, like, a character that they assumed right because they might get questioned they might get stopped and and they might get arrested even and yeah, they can't right. just pull down the whole operation with them that would be ridiculous they conversed uh, solely in english during this i guess to practice their english make sure their english is up to snuff uh they read lots of american newspapers and magazines uh you know what's current in the u.s right now um, they also got $175,000 oh, in my American money. God, you guys, they got so much cash. So Dash, as the leader, got $50,000 for operational purposes. $50,000 in 1942, that's the equivalent of $600,000 in today's money. In oh cash. My gosh. They just handed it to him. So they gave him 50000 for operational purposes and 5000 per agent, and that works out to 60000 which is almost $60,000 per agent. Eight agents, yeah. Every wow. man on the mission got a money belt full of $4,000, which is the equivalent of almost $50,000, plus 450 bucks in ready cash, and that's about $5,200, for immediate use. So in total, <laughs> I can't. are you ready? Wow. In total, they were carrying $180,000, which is the equivalent of nearly $2 million in cash. It really is. You've got to trust your guys if you're sending them to the U.S. with so much cash. Right? And and indeed, (laughs) we can see that that was a temptation. These guys, so we've said, these guys are not, they're not incredibly bright. Um, I mm-hmm. like George Dash the best. Oh, I like Burger best. Oh, I do like Burger best. He's got the most to Yeah, and he and he kept it cool to the end, but but we'll go into that. George Dash, who I do like, um, leaves sensitive documents on a train when they're taking a train to get to the U-boat that will take them to the U.S. Another agent who I'm thinking is our hothead, um, I couldn't figure out which one it was, actually gets drunk in a bar in Paris and tells everyone that he's a Nazi secret agent. Like, it just keeps going. That was Heinrich Heinke. He got drunk. They were on a break in Paris before they got going. He was at the Du Monde bar, and he let everyone know he was a secret agent. All right, so the next problem, once they were trained and they got their supplies, they got all their paperwork, tons of cash, the next problem is how do you get them to the U.S.? 
there aren't boats, there aren't planes, there aren't really civilian transport of any kind between Germany and the U.S. Their only option, the men of Operation Pastorius were going to hitch a ride on a U-boat, an actual German submarine. U stands for Unterwasserboot, which is underwater boat. Great name. The plan was the boat would get them to the eastern coast of the U.S., and then they would use like an inflatable rubber boat to get to shore, and then they had to decide where to land. So Dash really knew the towns of Southampton and East Hampton very well. He had worked there as a waiter, and he decided the southeastern tip of Long Island was the best place to land. Now, then you have to consider what to do when you're landing. And one really important thing is they knew that they wanted to be in German naval uniforms when they landed. Which is very smart. They definitely needed that because if they were caught in uniform, they would be prisoners of war. If they were caught in civilian clothes, they could be executed as spies, enemy spies. But, so here's the thing, you land in your German naval uniform, you're not going to go strolling around Manhattan in your German naval uniform. No. So, if the landing was successful, they escaped detection, then they would need to change immediately into civilian clothes and bury their German uniforms on the beach. And there was going to be a lot of burying on the beach because that was where they would have to hide all their explosives. Right, you can't just go into Manhattan also with a crazy amount of explosives. The idea is to hide them, come back for it as soon as Mm -hmm. they, like, figured it out. I I don't really get this part. I'm like, there must have been a better way. I mean, I get not keeping the uniforms. It's the only way, though, yeah. I mean, there really isn't a better way. I think that's why they got powerful explosives and, like, very specific places to put them because they just didn't have a ton of, you know, explosives available to them. Yeah, this is when I feel like they should have reached out to the Nazi party here and been like, hey, (laughs) we got guys coming there. I'm sure those guys are being watched, but we got guys coming. Can you give them bombs when they show up? Well, in fact, we, they, they did do that. So they, um, amid all the things they received, they also received names and addresses of contact people who were sympathetic to the Nazi cause who could help them when they were in the U.S. Not people who could supply them with explosives, unfortunately, but there was a pro-Nazi Lutheran priest in Rahway, New Jersey. One of the V-men had an uncle in Chicago who could give them shelter if they needed it. The leader of the Florida unit was a guy named Edward Curling. His best friend lived in Astoria and was a thoroughly reliable Nazi. So there were, you know, there were contacts, but not so much like bomb supplying contacts. It was more like shelter and uh, cash and food if you need it kind of contacts. I feel like the bomb contacts would have been good. But it's another I agree. It's another <laughs> thing in the long list of things that went horribly things that wrong. Went wrong. Yes. Yes. So that's the thing. Like of all the reasons, you know, I, I've got this whole list here of why Cappy should have just called it off before they even got on damn U-boat. Yes. They did all this training and practicing and planning, uh, but they consistently revealed themselves to be problematic at the minimum. Uh, so during their training, on their furloughs, during the mission itself, it was really clear that they were less than interested in aluminum factories and much more interested in running around Berlin or Paris or Manhattan spending the Fuhrer's money. Yes. So Dash, as we know, is is problematic. He was uh, defiant. He was really smirky when they were training them and all the technical aspects. He didn't really pay attention. His rationale was, I'm the leader. As long as my team knows how to do that, then we're fine. So when Kepe would call him out on being a dick, he would never do the Heil Hitler salute, keep his hand in his pockets. Yeah, that, that sort of made sense. And again, he knew slang. He knew about baseball. He was definitely in. Berger, yeah, Kate is right. He, okay, so in a lot of ways, he seemed every inch a very loyal Nazi, but he had spent 17 months in a concentration camp uh, because of following Ernst Röhm. Uh, did you read about the Night of the Long Knives? Yes, I, I actually oh, do. Oh, my Lord, isn't that a terrifyingly named night? It's terrible. I have another book, uh about it um trying to remember the name the guy who wrote devil in the white city Mm -hmm. wrote a book called in the garden of beasts 
Oh, and, is that about like, Night of the Long Knives? Right. Well, there's a section where they talk about the Night of the Long Knives. Um, it's mm, about okay. this um, the American uh, ambassador to ambassador, Germany. Right? As, I, like, I started reading that. It was pretty good. Um, but yeah, they talk mm. about that. It's a really terrifying... Yeah. And the name alone is like a really scary... I don't know. It, I, I get like horror movie like images yes, in my yes. head. So Kate had explained this a little bit before, but it was this horrifying fratricide within the Nazi party of this, uh, the stormtrooper leader, Ernst Röhm, who Peter Berger was a follower of. Uh, Röhm used to be one of Hitler's very close associates, but then Hitler decided Röhm was getting too powerful and had to be eliminated along with his followers, and that was the Night of the Long Knives. And Ernst Peter Berger was very lucky to have not been killed in that. Right. So that, in addition to 17 months in the German prison for a document he wrote, you could kind of see reason to doubt maybe his loyalty, but uh, but the leaders of this operation did not doubt his loyalty. Yeah, Heinrich Henke is the one who announced to everyone <clears throat> in Paris that he was a secret agent, but the best one, I think, in my mind, for being... Uh, a flake and a bad saboteur, Joseph Schmidt, our huge blonde guy, he begged to see a doctor the night before they shipped out. They were ready to go. They were on the coast. The U-boat was ready. Everything was ready. <clears throat> the night before, he begs to see a doctor, and he claimed he had a venereal disease oh my goodness. from a prostitute that he hired. So the doctor told him to drop trowel, lie down, and here's what he found, guys. Sorry. Oh. You can step away for a few seconds if you don't want to hear this. You found that Joseph Schmidt's penis was covered in a brownish foam. Oh, God, that's so disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. The doctor said, it's gonorrhea. He's not going. And the U-boat captain was like, fuck no, he's not going. He's not coming on my boat. And no matter what, Cape tried and tried and tried. Didn't work. He's not going. And Schmidt was eventually excluded from duty. Later on, he revealed that he had a bad feeling about this mission, he knew it wasn't going to work, and he injected his own penis with a soda solution to keep from embarking. Oh, my God. Um, it's kind of brilliant, but it's like, what, what, why? But he was right. It was a very good decision he made. It was, it was. <laughs> so the thing is, in the V-Men's defense, for everyone who's like, this is not, I got a bad feeling about this. You know, they were feeling that way. But their preparation team was really sloppy. So one of the guys from the Florida team, Herbie Haupt, he was actually the youngest. He was like a kid. He was like 19. And he was looking through his $50 of walking around money. He noticed they were issued not just greenbacks, but also yellowbacks. What's a yellowback, Kath? I'll tell you. Those are bills that had been taken out of circulation in 1934. <sighs> after the U.S. went off the gold standard. Right. And Herbie, rightfully, flipped his shit. He couldn't believe it. He said, our lives are on the line with this mission. You are giving us this worthless and incriminating Money. currency. Right. What are you thinking? The entire episode made the leader of the Florida team, this Edward Curling guy, he pulled Kappa aside and he was like, I can't go with this operation it is too dangerous to proceed i'm not gonna do it not gonna do it and Kappa said it's too late to back out now you're going wow and in addition just like kate said dash had made his own mistake of similar proportions when he left all those papers on the train that they had taken from paris to the u-boat launch site he lost his American social security card. He lost his notebook full of spy training notes. It's amazing that they got as far as they did. Yeah, yeah. He lost photos of his wife and mother. And then when he realized he noticed, when, when he realized what happened, this is great. He goes back to the train station. He's frantic. He's trying to retrieve these papers. He's pulling rank with everyone at the train authority. And they reported him to the Gestapo. Because they're like, this guy's acting crazy. Uh, Dash called on Kappa. Kappa cleaned up the mess, but it was a humiliating, humiliating uh, time for both of them because they both got this lecture about carelessness from the Gestapo major. And, of course, Dash's documents were never found. What an idiot. I'm sorry. Oh, my but God. Yeah. yeah. It just gets, it gets better and better. 
And we haven't even gotten to New York yet. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And now that they've lost Schmidt, we are down to four. So that's Dash and Berger, Quirin and Hank. And on they get to their submarine. So the submarine is a boat called the U-202. This was going to be a slow trip. It takes two weeks to go across. They live with a crew of 45. The space was the length of two subway cars, which doesn't sound too bad until you realize that most of the space was occupied with torpedoes. Right. And the engine. Equipment and gauges and dials and hardware. No one on the U-boat knew why there were these four civilian strangers. And again, it, it's not fast. So U-boats are great because they can submerge. They're not really known for their speed. No. They, they don't spend much time submerged. They, they do when they have to. It's actually better to travel on the surface because they can move more quickly. They have diesel engines. They can use those. And they can move along at like 10 to 12 knots. 10 to 12 knots is how fast a bicycle goes. It's so sad. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. every step of the way you're like, how did this work? Like, how did they even get mm-hmm. this far? It's it's amazing. I mean, when it's for military purposes and they're patrolling the Atlantic, I guess it works. But if you're, like, transporting people who needed to do a thing and they're civilians, uh, and then when they're submerged, uh, you know, the U-boat can't use its diesel engine. They only have electric motors to move them along. And then they can only go two and a half knots. That is slower than walking. Hey, I could walk here faster. Yeah, yeah. So, in addition, it's not a comfortable trip. Uh, crowding is only part of the problem on a Unterwasser boat. They, when they travel on the surface, there was like constant loud noise because of the diesel engines, but they were also constantly being tossed from the waves. All the members of Operation Pistorius, except Hank, because he had worked as a sailor before, uh, were violently seasick. Dash was the worst of all. He begged the captain to move the boat faster. That wasn't really an option. By the third day out, the ship began to stink. Stank of unwashed men, burning diesel oil, cooked food, and it also stank of the cheap perfume that sailors brought to prepare for how stinky the boat was going to be. I also, like, two weeks without a shower just sounds like... Isn't that I I don't think I could do it. I I get that it's the only way, but oh... I do want to thank our American soldiers at this point for their sacrifice, because I don't think I could do that. So after two miserable weeks on the U-202, it was finally the night of the landing, and that was June 13. So it was a new moon that night. It was foggy, so it was great. Really perfect conditions for being invisible. However, that does make the landing quite tricky. Very tricky. The U-boat captain tried to plot it out. He sailed toward the coast kind of slowly. As he's doing that, Dash is giving his, uh, his saboteurs their American cash. Dash ordered them to empty their pockets of any potentially incriminating German items like cigarettes. They changed into those, you know, military uniforms so that if they were picked up, they wouldn't be executed on the spot. And then, of course, they would just change into their civilian clothes right away. They got the rubber dinghy ready. The two strongest rowers were summoned. They were going to bring the saboteurs to the shore. It's nearly midnight, super foggy. The U-boat hits the sandy bottom, shutters. They bring all the saboteurs up on deck, get the gear and equipment. The U-boat, the the captain got it to kind of swing around with the tide. So it was like parallel with the shoreline. And then they flew into action. They lowered the dinghy, loaded the equipment, got the guys on board, and the rowers began to move. They wanted to move at a 90-degree angle so that it could, you know, go directly to the shore. But it was really foggy. They got very disoriented in the fog. At that point, they could only navigate by listening to the waves crashing on the shore. That was the only way they could know where they were headed. They finally got themselves oriented, but they kept getting soaked by huge waves. It was like huge waves were just slamming the boat the whole time. Seawater soaked the men and their bags of clothes and their crates of equipment. But they made it to the shore. They unloaded the gear and waved goodbye to the rowers who wanted to get the heck off of American soil. They had made it. Saboteurs had finally made it. Weeks and weeks of training, miserable weeks of travel. They finally stood on American soil, technically on American sand, and quickly started to change into their civilian clothes. All was not well on the U-boat. 
So the rowers returned, and everyone's like, woohoo, successful drop-off, we did it, we did it! The mood very quickly changed. The U-boat captain realized they were stuck on a sandbar. I just, I love this. A U-boat is stuck. Not just a, yeah, a German U-boat is like stuck off of Amagansett, New York. Why did they even get in so close? Why didn't the rowers, I don't, I don't know. But in all the, you know, all the hustle, they're getting the saboteurs, they're getting the rubber boat, they're getting the equipment, they get it all launched. The captain failed to notice that the waves had been pushing the submarine further and further up onto the sandbar. This was becoming an even worse problem as the tide started to go out. Incidentally, a U-boat has a height of 31 and a half feet. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. That's basically a three-story building stranded on a sidebar as the tide goes out and the fog starts to thin and the sunrise is coming quick. You can't just get out there and push it. Like, you can't it's get not... out there and push it. You could try. You, it won't work. And if it couldn't get any worse... There was a very similar shift in mood on shore as well. And initially, you know, they're cold, they're wet, but they made it. It's awesome. They're very happy until Dash noticed a nearby flashing beacon. As it turns out, they made a very big error and landed near a Coast Guard station. Even worse, through the fog, Dash could see a figure heading toward them with his flashlight beam bobbing towards the soaked saboteurs so stay tuned for the final episode where you hear about what happens in the u.s what happens to the u-boat and what happens to the saboteurs talk to you next time bye bye for more abc gotham go to our website, www.abcgotham.podbean.com. Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. This night of New York City